Bible, let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 6, and uh, I want us to kind of learn the uh, Lord's Prayer together. It's, I think scripture memorization is, is a wonderful um, attribute that uh, you need to add to your life um, because the Holy Spirit can take what you plant uh, within your heart, and he can, he can bring that up at any time. So uh, we're, we're spending time in this prayer because I believe that prayer is the key or one of the key factors in transformation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if you are in Christ, that you are a new creation, that the old has gone and the new has come. Now, in the verb tenses there, he's saying that the new has come. It's not like it's going to come sometime in the future. It's not going to come when you die and get to heaven. You've you've become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so the first question is, well, if the old is gone and the new has come, why do I still wrestle with the old? And so it's not that it's not there. So Paul comes along and says, well, there's certain things you need to put on and certain things that you need to take off. But to be in Christ is to be in relationship with him. And so... um, in essence, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about just getting, giving us a get-out-of-hell-free card. That, that is not the essence of the gospel. Sometimes that's how we present it to people. It's like, you know, you sin against God, and if you don't get your sin forgiven, you're going to go to hell when you die. Well, that, that may be true, and that is a part of the gospel, but that's not the essence of the whole gospel. The essence of the gospel is that God wants to bring transformation in our lives, and he wants to transform us by transforming our hearts. And so the Old Testament prophets would say, like, you know, we have a heart of stone, and God wants to make it a heart of flesh. He wants to mold it and shape it and transform it. And one of the ways that he does that is through his trinity of prayer, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God. All three of those come together, combine together in order for us, and then you, you throw into that mix the experiences that you have in life as you're living life. God wants to take those experiences, the Word of God, the um, Spirit of God in prayer, and then begin transforming your heart, your mind, your will, your emotions, your soul, so that you become this new creation that God has created you to be. In other words, so what God's already created you to be begins to come to the surface, and it's not something like, well, this can only happen when someday I die and go to heaven, that's all going to be better. That's not the life that God has called us to. And um, so we are being conformed, the Bible says, to the image of Christ. So what does it mean to be conformed to that image? What does it mean to live the life of Jesus? Do you know that you can so live the life of Christ that you become more super than Superman and more incredible than the Incredible Hulk? You actually can. So here are some things I believe that the Bible bears out to us uh, that we can morph into this Jesus image. For example, do you believe that you can be completely free from, um, from worrying about anything? That you, you think you can be completely free from that? Well, Jesus thought you could. He says uh, things like, well, why are you worrying about these things? Do not be anxious about anything. So he, he writes this to the Apostle Paul, who is, you know, a follower of Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of Christ that surpasses all human understanding can guard your heart and your mind. Do you believe God's word is true? 
You think he can do that? I'm not saying that you don't get hit with anxiety. I'm not saying you don't get hit with worry. I'm just simply saying you don't have to stay there. You don't have to live there. Sometimes we wear worry and anxiety like it's a badge of honor in our Christian life. And God says it does not have to be that way. Or um, do you feel, think that you can feel content about your financial situation regardless of what it is? Again, uh, Paul tells us, hey, I learned how to be content whether I had much or little. Even Jesus says, why are you worrying about these things? Do you not look at the, the, the birds of the air and the lilies of the field? Does not your father know what they have need of? And, and look what he has done. Why are you worrying about these things? Don't even waste a day worrying about these things, but seek first the kingdom of God. Is that possible? Well, Jesus seemed to think so. Or what about having no ill feelings towards somebody? Absolute forgiveness. Is that possible? Or when Jesus said, love your enemies and do good towards them and pray for them, that was just kind of a fallacy. Like, you know, well, you know, it's a good idea, but you're, you really don't need to follow that. But, you know, try if you can. Or what, if, what about enslavement to destructive habits? Do those have to be characteristic of your life? Or, or did Jesus say something about setting us free by giving us the truth that's going to renew our mind, that's going to enable us to walk in the freedom of Christ? What about outward circumstances? Can, can you be in, an outward circum, in a circumstance and still have peace at the same time, even though it's chaotic around you? Well, Jesus seemed to think so. And when the disciples are in a boat and, and chaos is ensuing around them through a storm, he just comes in and says, you know, peace, you know, storm be still. And, and again, Paul says we can have that peace of Christ. Can you have the assurance that God is pleased with your life? You know, when Jesus began his earthly ministry, what did the Father say from heaven? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't even done anything yet. And you're thinking, well, but I've done stuff, and I, I just don't think God can be pleased with that. Do you know that if you're in Christ and he's in you, and you're enveloped in the righteousness of Jesus, that when God looks at you, he looks down upon you, says, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. If you're believing anything outside of that, it's not coming from God. And so what Jesus is saying is, God has given us the embryonic form inside of us to live these things out. And, and the way that that happens is through this heart transformation that we encounter as we live day in and day out with our Heavenly Father. So that we're not just coming to God and, and we're trying to struggle in prayer. And we all know that prayer is important, but it's always the number one thing that people struggle with the most. Because we learn, for most of us, we did not have someone to teach us how to pray or what that looks like. So we learn from others the, the, the grocery list praying. You just take your grocery list. You you dump it on God's lap and tell him to take care of it in Jesus' name, and I'll come back in once in a while, and I'll check on that and see how you're doing, God. That is not what prayer is about. That's really not what God wants to do. The key to Jesus' life here on earth was his lifeline to the Father through prayer. It is no accident that the gospel writers continually point out Jesus began the day with prayer. Jesus ended his day with prayer. Jesus would withdraw throughout the day and pray. Jesus prayed all night long because he's about to make a very, very important decision. If Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the Son of God, come from heaven to earth, needed that lifeline with his heavenly Father, how much more do you and I need it? Because 
Jesus says, I want to teach you how to have face-to-face encounters with God. That's why his disciples, they didn't ask him how to be a better teacher, how to be, perform more powerful miracles, but they did ask you, Lord, teach us to pray. There's just something here, and um, we need to learn this. And so Jesus taught his disciples how to have this, this encounter with their father that could lead them to transformation of their lives. Now, please understand, this transformation process is a lifelong process. You're never going to get to the point where you say, well, I've reached the pinnacle. I'm all there is. You know, after all that, when God just dramatically saved the Apostle Paul, who was a hater of Christians, a persecutor of the church on the road to Damascus, God changed his heart and his life. He began living for Christ, serving Christ. Even when he came to the end of his life, he still looked upon himself like, I'm a, I'm a chief sinner here. There's so much more that God needs to transform in in spite of all that God had transformed. I'm just simply saying, let's not settle for second best and just kind of, you know, meander our way to heaven someday. Let's live God's best in the here and now that we can possibly live. It is a process, and it's making progress, not perfection, that we're looking for. And so Jesus gave the disciples this pattern of prayer that we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. So the first line of that prayer is, Our Father who art in heaven. Let's say that together. Our Father who art in heaven. Look at your neighbor and say that. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Or your translation may be a little bit different. Um, So I'm reverting back to King James here. Or New American Standard. That's most of the scripture I've, I've memorized is New American Standard. Our Father who art in heaven, we looked at that last week. It is so important that we have an understanding of how we relate to God. Hallowed be thy name. Um, God, God has forever tied his activity here on earth to prayer. Prayerlessness is my way of saying to God, I don't need you. I can handle this. I think I can do better on my own. Prayerfulness is simply acknowledging to God, I can't handle this. I've made a mess of this in the past. Probably will do it again in the present. I need you. And so I'm surrendering my life to you. And this is, this is what he's saying. Prayer declares our dependence upon our Heavenly Father. He longs to hear that prayer that we, we need help because, remember, prayer is what releases God's power and resources from heaven to earth. And so today we want to talk about discovering God's power. His power is displayed through his names. So this word hallowed, hallowed be your name, holy is your name, means to set apart. It means to praise. It means to adore. So in essence, what Jesus is saying, before I just run into God's presence and dump my grocery list on his lap, how about we spend a little time with the Father in relationship? That's what this is all about, relationship. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I'm setting you apart, God. I'm acknowledging you. I am in awe of you. I am praising you for who you are. I'm thanking you for the things that you have done because there is power behind your names, because your names display your character. Your names display who you are. Now, in our day and time, we, uh, we, give, we have a given name, right? So somebody, you were born into a family, they, they gave you a name. Maybe you were named after your father or grandfather. 
You know, a lot of times we just name kids by, you know, we, we just like the name. Or like for Marissa, our youngest daughter, we got her name out of a magazine. Imagine that. Uh, so we just like, we like the word Marissa. And so that, that's the name that, that was given to her. But in, in God's day and time, in biblical times, um, I say God's day and time. This is God's day and time. In biblical times, uh, names were given um, for a variety of different reasons. For it might be that your name was given to you based on the circumstances in which you were born. Uh, or your name might be given as a prophetic word that's going to, to kind of display your future and, and what's out in front of you. There are a lot of different ways. And so God would oftentimes change somebody's name, right? So uh, he said to um, Saul, I'm going to call you Paul. Or Jacob, I'm going to call you Israel. Jacob literally meant heel catcher. Israel was the father of many because he was about to become the father of the 12 sons who make up the 12 nations of Israel. Um, or Simon to Peter, all to reflect their new personality or their special purpose in God's unfolding plan. And so names are very important. And uh, so to hallow God's name means that I'm honoring God's name to see it for its importance and its value. Society does not often value God's name. Now, one of the big 10, God says, do not misuse my name. Do not use my name in vain. So when we treat God's name like uh or um, or we write OMG, oh my God, that's misusing his name. His name is greater than that. His name has more value than that. It's not, his name is not a filler. And oftentimes, you know, like when I grew up, most of the times when I heard God's name, it was used in a curse word. So um, God's name represents his character. So to value God's name is to value who God is. There is power in his name. The names that are displayed on our walls, we're going to look at them today. Probably some of you have come in here and said, well, who's Jehovah Shaman? Who's Jehovah Rophe? And who's Jehovah Jireh? And who's... What do those names mean? I, wanna, I want us to extract these names to show you what God desires to do for you through his names because you have become a son or a daughter of the living God. And as we value his name, as we value God in our relationship with him, there are certain things that God wants to do. He wants to extract power from his name and make it available to you so that you can leverage it in life. So how do you discover God's power in my life? Number one is this. You have to recognize, you recognize that God is able to meet your deepest needs. The names on our walls here all were given to individuals who had a very deep-seated need, and God came through for them, and then he displayed his name and said, this is who I am. I am who I am. These are my names. There are hundreds of names for God. There are many names for Jesus, and they're all displaying a certain aspect of God's character and his, who he is and how he acts and reacts and the value behind those names. So I want us to look at these names on our walls and see how God's name can display a specific need in your life and how he wants to meet that need. So here's number one. God wants to reduce my stress. Right? If Jesus says, you don't have to be anxious about anything, you don't have to worry about these things, your father knows that you have need of these things, look at the birds of the air, if he says all that stuff, and if that is true, do you not think that God can help 
bring some stress reduction in my life. Now, every single one of us experiences stress in life. Not all stress is bad. But when it becomes overwhelming and a burden, it begins to have all kinds of negative effects upon you. It begins to have spiritual effects, it affects your soul, your mind, and your emotions, and it will eventually affect your body. Your body's going to react to stress. And so we know that like the number one cause of heart disease is undue stress. Right? So if I walk around with stress all the time, then, then it's going to have a physical um, it's going to wake up in a, a physical way. So there are two names uh, on our walls, that, and I put these on your outline, that describe, and the first one is right back here, Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah Shalom means peace. God is, God is our peace. He is our comfort. He is our security. The second name is Jehovah Shema, which is over here, which means that God is here, that God is with me. Uh, God is always there. And so these two names reveal God as a father who brings supernatural peace and his divine presence into the situation in your life that's creating stress. And he does this through the person of the Holy Spirit. Most people today are overstressed and very uptight, right? So I heard a guy uh, this week who got arrested for disturbing the peace, and I wondered where he got it. You'll get that in a minute. Disturbing peace. Where do you get the peace? Okay. Bad joke. Maybe you can relate to these phrases, though. Finish this. I'm ready to throw in the... Good, good. I'm just a bundle of... I'm at the end of my... My life is falling. Yeah, I'm, I'm at my wits. I feel like resigning from the human. See, we deal so much with stress in our lives that we have all kinds of phrases that describe it because this is just the way we live and it's the way we, we, we are. And, and so people will go to any lengths in our day and time to find peace in the midst of their stress, to find some kind of release, some kind of comfort, some kind of presence that's going to help them deal with their stress. And so sometimes people go to, you know, they'll go to therapy. Uh, maybe it's a long vacation. Uh, maybe it's, you know, you're turning to, to extra, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, in order to release the stress. And, and so you're looking for things um, in your, you know, maybe it's going to a seminar, listening to a tape. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you like to run. Like, you know what, you get all stressed and and you love to run, or maybe you love to exercise because you're trying to you reduce stress in your life. And the problem is that once we've done all of these things, when we get to the end of it, we still have the same bills, we still have the same problems, we still have the same circumstances. What if your circumstances never change? Can you live in peace that's creating stress, that's robbing you of peace? Can you live in peace with circumstances that are not changing. And the Bible bears out the fact that absolutely you can. In fact, the peace of God in you can be so greater than the peace that's lacking outside of you. In other words, you're in a situation of chaos that there can be so much peace of God inside of you that literally what's inside of you begins to affect what's around you and rather than vice versa, that what's around you starts to affect inside of you. So you either want to be a thermostat or you want to be a thermometer. A thermostat is what controls the temperature. A thermometer only reflects what, temperature, what the temperature is. So I want my life to be a 
thermostat, so I, I'm in, I have this peace of God that surpasses all human understanding, even though everything's chaotic around me, my circumstances are not ideal, I want to step into that situation, into that arena, and I want to bring with me the peace of Christ because it begins to alter the atmosphere around me. Because you are doing, what, remember I said you have an enemy, you're in a war, and so you, you have an enemy who's going to fight against you by seeking to rob you of your peace. You can change that through the power of God's name. Jesus said this, the peace I give you isn't fragile like the peace of the world that it gives, so don't be troubled or afraid. That's John 14, 27. And so the world's peace, we know, is based on circumstances, right? It's based on experiences. Is everything around me calm? Is everything around me the way I want it? And how, how often does that happen in life, really? I mean, come on. Especially you, those of you who got small kids, there's nothing calm in your house at all. It's always chaotic, and there's always somebody else that had to be fed or changed. And so now in, in my stage of life, for me and my wife, we have that setting, okay? We come to the house. It's just us. We have no animals anymore. We have no children at home. So we come into a calm atmosphere unless the Friday night fights are going on with my next-door neighbors and the neighbors across the street. Other than that, we just get popcorn, sit on the front porch, and watch it all which happened this past Friday night. So, so how, how, but, but God's peace is based on his character, right? He's Jehovah Shalom. He, he is Jehovah Shema. He is the shepherd who never leaves you. He's the shepherd who never forsakes you. God can replace my stress with his peace no matter what is going on around me. And um, how do you get that kind of peace? How do you get that? You get it by coming to know your father. That's how you get it. One of the reasons we don't experience what God is offering is because we don't even know the father that we're praying to. All we know is he's the dad who's the vending machine or the Santa Claus or the cosmic butler. Here's my list. Please take care of it. So let me give you an assignment. I'm going to give you an assignment for each of these. And I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't have time to unpack all of these today, but I'm going to unpack all five of these names throughout the rest of the remainder of this series as we make our way through the Lord's Prayer. So I'm just kind of whetting your appetite. Here's your assignment. I want you to write down, what is your greatest stress right now? What is your greatest stress? And if it's your spouse sitting next to you, just kind of cover your hand this way and this way. Or put an X. They won't know what the X means. Oh, baby, what's X? X stand for? Well, you know, it's uh, somebody at work, right? So it might be your finances, health, relationships. It could be a lot of different things. What is it? And then put beside that, you know, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and make that your prayer this week. And, and start praying that God would bring the shalom, which means wholeness and completeness and well-being into your life. Things are so that things become properly aligned and in order. A person of peace is, they're stable, they're calm, they're, they're orderly, they're, they are at rest within regardless of what's happening around you. And the warning light that you're not, you're not living in the rest of your heavenly father is worry. Worry, nothing creates stress more than worry, right? I'm worried, worried, worried. And so worry always ties us to the future. Remember what Jesus said about that in Romans, or, uh, Matthew chapter 6? Why are you borrowing trouble from tomorrow? Stop it. 
You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Why are you borrowing trouble from there when you need to just focus on today? See, that's one of the reasons why we can't rest in our Father and why we can't live in peace is because we keep borrowing from what, we, what might happen tomorrow, what might happen down the road. Like, I'm at a point in my life right now where retirement is a, a, a reality at some point. And so, you know, I, I can sit around worrying all the, oh, you know, what's going to happen to my investments? What if the stock market crashes? What if this, what if this, what if this, what if this? And I could worry, 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 worry. And if I'm worrying all day long about those things, I have no peace. I have no rest. I have no calmness. But if I give those things over to my Heavenly Father and say, literally say to God, God, you know what? There has not been a day in my life that you have not provided for me. Why would I worry about that now? And why would I worry about that in the future? You said that if I will seek your kingdom, that you will add all these things unto me. I'm resting on your promise. Resting on your promise. Number two, God wants to forgive my sin. He calls, us, he calls himself Jehovah Sedeknu. Name back here. God is my righteousness. How did you become righteous? To be right means you are in a right standing with God. What put you in a right standing with God? Your relationship with Jesus Christ. Nobody can put you in a right standing with God except Jesus himself. So when you receive Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, suddenly, again, you became enveloped in the righteousness of Jesus. And so when God looks upon you, that is what he sees. You are in a right standing with God. And Jesus says no one can change nor alter that standing, not even you. And he calls himself Jehovah M. Kadesh, which means God is my sanctity. He is my holiness. Think about how many times that you have withheld yourself from a place of prayer because you felt unworthy to come in God's presence because of something you said or did. Or better yet, how many of you pray with a lot of confidence? Like if you had a really good week, you know, now you didn't mess up much and you didn't yell at your spouse and you didn't, you know, spank your kids or whatever. Uh, I don't know, what, whatever it is for you that just like, rack, you know, just wrecks your world that week and you feel like, oh God, you know, I just blew it all week long and Lord, I really need to come and pray, but I just really don't feel worthy of praying. I don't feel like I, I you know, I just feel like, I just feel like dirty and, and, and I just don't feel like I can come into your presence and ask for those things. And, and, and what's the basis of that? Your performance. Your performance is never the basis of your relationship with your heavenly father. His love is unconditional. It doesn't matter how much I mess up. Hebrews chapter 4 says that because of my relationship with Jesus, that I can enter into the throne room of God with confidence in knowing that as I'm praying, I'm going to find God's grace and mercy in my time of need. So if I feel like I'm more worthy to pray because I had a good week as opposed to a bad week, that's bad theology, all right? That, that is not coming from your heavenly Father. Again, that's coming from your enemy. We have all failed. We've all fallen. We've all stumbled. We have all felt ashamed about things that we have done, attitudes that we have had, words that we have spoken. We've all had those mess-ups during the course of the week, but my righteousness, my right standing before God is because of the imputed that is credited to my account, the righteousness of Jesus. So focus on that, not what you've done wrong. So if you focus on something you've done wrong, 
What do you, what's your mind thinking about all the time? I'm a horrible person. You know, Satan's going to come along. He's going to have a little throw in a little condemnation. You're a failure. You're a horrible person. It's like when you go on a diet and, and then somebody says, hey, by the way, there's some chocolate cake there in the refrigerator. And you're thinking, I'm not going to eat that chocolate cake. I'm not going to eat that chocolate. What are you doing? You're thinking about not eating chocolate cake. So that's all you think about is the chocolate cake, chocolate cake, chocolate cake. So, all right, 10 minutes. I'll give you 10 minutes. You're in there. You got the chocolate cake out, right? So you have to shift your focus. Your, your mind is, is going to move and gravitate towards that which uh, it, it is focused upon. And so this is God's grace. He wants to forgive. He desires to forgive. I mean, in the Old Testament, we have an example of this through Jonah the prophet who was sent to Nineveh to share the gospel as they knew it with the Ninevites, the Syrians, the capital city. They hated the Israelites. They were arch enemies of the Israelites. They were a brutal nation, a warring nation. And Jonah says to God, I ain't going. And he heads in the opposite direction. So God prepares the fish and you know, swallows him up. You know, three days in the fish, you get a little more clarity about life. And so he says, Lord, you know, I made a mistake. So he dumps him out on the shore and says, now, go and do what I told you to do. And so he does. He walks into Nineveh. He shares the message that God gave to him. The entire city is in sackcloth and ashes and repentance under God. And so rather than God destroying them, he forgives them and he, he, uh, he secures them as a nation. And then Jonah gets all, I mean, he is mad at God. So mad that he asked, he went up on the side of the mountain and says, God, you might as well just kill me. I knew this is what you would do. I knew that you were a God of grace and mercy and compassion. I knew that you would allow grace. And he's just fired up. Why? Because that's what God loves to do. He loves to forgive. He loves to restore. But then we have an enemy who comes against us who loves to condemn and loves to tear down and loves to make us feel guilty and begins harping on our minds. You are worthless. You are a failure. You don't deserve this. You, you deserve what you got. You never, you never change. You're hopeless. You're disgusting. You, you, you know, you are, you're not a real Christian. God is sick of you. And so the goal in condemnation of the evil, which is always very vague, the goal is to leave you filled with guilt and shame. Do you know that Jesus came to remove your guilt and shame, and he removed it once and for all the moment you gave your life to him? The Holy Spirit will convict because the goal of conviction is to grow us. It is to, to move us closer to our Heavenly Father, not away from. Condemnation's goal is to, is to move you away from God, to get you to distrust God. Satan, from the very beginning of the Garden of Eden, had Adam and Eve, he planted the seeds of distrust, and he's planted those seeds from then all the way to the present. Cannot trust God, cannot trust God, you can't trust God. In fact, I meant to bring my prayer book up here out of, uh, as I was reading out of 2 Chronicles 32, I, I listed seven ways that, that Satan will trick you into distrusting God. God sanctifies us through Christ. He wants to forgive, he longs to forgive. So here's your assignment. What, what is your, I want you to write down your worst fault. What's your worst fault? Think of, the, think of what makes you feel most guilty. Well, it may be something from the past, maybe something in the present. And then I want you to write, I want you to write the word forgiven. 1 John 1, 7 says that the blood of Christ purifies us from all sin. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there is now no 
condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's our Heavenly Father. Number three, God wants to heal your hurts. He wants to heal your hurts. He's Jehovah Rophe. He is the God who is our healer. As you studied the ministry of Jesus, it's obvious that he spent a lot of time healing, physical hurt, emotional hurts, um, you know, raising the dead, healing the sick, giving the blind sight, the cripples are walking, the deaf are hearing. This means my God is a healer. He, he wants to heal the hurts that you have. Somebody asked me the question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a whole message on this, why doesn't God heal everyone? Why is it that I pray for some people, God doesn't heal them, they die? Why doesn't God heal everyone? And I, I messaged back to this person, I said, that's a great question. And she messaged me back, she says, do you have a great answer? I do, but I can't unpack it in a, a text. But I will unpack that, that pressing issue that a lot of believers have. Um, but I do want you to know this, that some of the deepest hurts that we have in life are not physical hurts, but emotional and relational pain. And God wants to heal those. He really does. And we're going to talk about when we get down to the part of the prayer, you know, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, exactly how he does that. But just let it be known, your heavenly Father desires that for you, to release those things in your life that hold you captive and enslaved. So here's your assignment Name your deepest hurt. What is your deepest hurt that you're still grappling with? That you've not let it go, you've not released it, it's still there, it may be under the surface, you may have shoved it into your subconscious, but you know that it's still lingering behind, and so we, we want to let God heal that and ask God to replace your ashes with his beauty and, and um, that he will restore the year the locusts have eaten and so we have a prayer team that can help you in that process. Take advantage of it. We're here on Wednesday nights and during our time of worship and prayer. Um, we'd love, love to help you in that area. Here's the next one. God wants to release my fears. Jehovah Nisi, God is my banner. He's my victory. Jehovah Rohi, he is my shepherd. And so in the Old Testament times, a banner was a signal to Israel that the conflict they were in was not actually their conflict. It was God's battle. Remember King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20, God said to Jehoshaphat, he's all worried and shook up because the enemy's coming against them, and it's a great enemy, and God says, look up. He says, the battle is not yours, the battle is mine. I will, I will display at myself, I will bring the victory to you, and he gave him one of the most unusual answers to the warring nation they were facing. He said, gather up the choir and send them into the battle, singing. Now, that'll scare somebody, right? Well, it depends on how badly they sing. I don't, if you have a choir of me, it would, that would scare everybody away right there. So. But the fact of the matter is that, that Satan wants to set up a banner over your life also, but instead of a caring shepherd, he has a banner of a self-made prince, the ruler of the demons of the world and the prince of the power of the air, and his chief weapon is fear. And so we become afraid of so many things. Think about how, how contained your life can become just because of your fears. All right, now Lori's sitting here. She handles animals all day long at Kosai. Um, I have a fear of snakes. I think the only good snake's a dead snake. Uh, she has no fear of snakes. I don't. I have fear of snakes. 
Why do I have that fear of snakes? I don't even know why I have that fear of snakes. I don't know if my dad had that fear, has fear of snakes, so maybe I got it from him. I don't know. But, but I've never been bitten by a snake. I, I've never had one attack me. Uh, so why would I have that kind of, I don't know. It's, that's not a, why would I have, Lori, maybe you can tell me. Why do I have that fear? I don't know. I, so, so, but you see, so what does that do? It says, oh, I can't, I can't be around snakes. I can't handle a snake. I can't pick one up. I can't feel what they've t- I don't even want to touch one. I don't even want to feel what it feels like to handle a snake. Now, let's, let's expand that in our lives and all the fears that we put in the bucket of our lives that keep us from experiencing our Heavenly Father. Because oftentimes, God wants to move us in closeness to Him, but in order to get us there, He has to move us outside of our self-imposed limitations that are encased in fear to get us outside of that to experience him in a new and dramatic way. So my prayer is that during this 21 days of prayer and fasting that God will zero in on one of your fears. So write down your greatest fear and give it to Jesus. All right, so let's give an example. I heard this from a, a, a bishop this week. Um, is that, remember, Jesus is the shepherd of our lives. So you remember when Peter was a, and all the disciples are in a boat and they're in a big storm and Jesus is walking across the water. They think it's a ghost, but no, it's Jesus. Peter says, Lord, bid me that I might come out to you. And so Peter, you know, he, he gets, he's got one foot in the boat, but he's got one foot in the water, but he's not made that commitment yet, right? So he's still in the natural. If Peter wants to move from the natural to the supernatural and walk on water, he's got to get both feet in the water. He gets both feet in the water. He's experiencing the supernatural power of God. And then all of a sudden, the waves come up, and he starts to sink. But watch, Peter doesn't swim back to the boat. He asks, the, the Lord just reaches out and gives, empowers him, and they walk back to the boat together. Walk hand in hand with your Savior. Walk hand in hand with your shepherd. That's why Jesus says, even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you have nothing to fear because I am with you. I'm walking with you. I'm hand in hand with you. Now let's get outside of our self-imposed limitations and see what God can do. Number one, the last one, God wants to meet your needs. Jehovah Jireh, God is my provider. He's my source, my sufficiency. God is my father. He's Abba. And so Abraham was called to go on Mount Moriah and offer up his son. And he said, the son, you know, Isaac says, Where, where's the sacrifice? And remember what Abraham said? God will provide. And sure, God, sure enough, God did. He provided a ram. We're all familiar with shortages, right? And there's a catastrophe in our house if there's a shortage of peanut butter. Right, so that's a catastrophe. Uh, we know about shortages with coffee or, you know, like, uh-huh. Um, but sometimes we have shortages in our own lives, right? Time, money, energy, um, patience. And so God, God acknowledges those needs. And we're going to talk about that when we, on the section where it says, you know, give us this day our daily bread. We'll dive deep into that. And so God wants to, to meet our needs and the things that causes stress within us. Um, but oftentimes our needs and our stress comes around the fact is because we are expecting someone or something to meet our deepest needs. I put that uh, burden upon you. Like when my wife and I got married, we, we burdened each other with that. You're going to meet my needs, I'm going to meet your needs. And so we, we expected each other to meet our deepest needs when only God can meet those needs. But I burdened her to do it, and she burdened me. And guess what? We were sinking. 
And we were like, and the life preserver were like, we were grabbing on each other. And as we're grabbing on each other, we're still sinking because we were looking for someone to meet our deepest need that God never created them to do that or the something that you're looking for to meet your deepest need. And you can get that something or that someone only to find out it's not going to work, right? It's just not going to work because it was never designed to work. God himself is the one who has declared himself to meet our deepest needs. And so then everything, everything, everything flows out of that relationship. So assignment is this, write down your most urgent need and turn it into an act of praise, turn it into an act of worship. I praise before I receive because that's faith, right? If I don't praise God until after I receive, then that's just sight. I want to I praise him in, in um, faith. So here's uh, number two. I recognize that God has given me delegated authority. So let me wrap this up because uh, this, is, this is kind of an important area, but we'll, we may pick this back up next week. Faith and prayer are inseparable. You need to understand that oftentimes in prayer, we want God to give us answers. God, I demand you to tell me, why did my wife die? Why did my sister get killed in a car accident? Why did my grandparents die tragically? God, why did this happen? And why did that happen? And why did this happen? I'm going to tell you, from my own experience and what I'm reading Scripture, God's not going to answer that. In fact, there was a person who tried that with God. His name was Job. Didn't turn out well for Job. God said, put on your big boy pants because we're going to have a conversation. You're not going to like it. Uh, here's why. Because answers never satisfy, first of all. And this would be like, it, this would be like me trying to explain to a two-year-old trigonometry. God is so far outside of us and so vast, and he's not limited by time and space like we are. He sees beginning to end and everything that factors in. And so God, um, yeah, we just couldn't even begin to fathom or understand all that God wants to unpack. So what God does give to us, though, are promises rather than specific answers. Because sometimes we come to prayer and we say, Lord, I'm having a, a marital problem. I want a specific answer. What do I do? Right? And then you, you sit there and you wait. Well, rather than God giving you a specific answer, because listen, God couldn't write enough verses in the Bible to answer every specific question you have. What he does do is give you principles and promises that frame your mind that enables you to make that decision and to know what to do. All right, so for example, when God said to me, hey, you're having marital problems with your wife, what do you th God, what should I do? I I'm waiting, I'm listening, I'm, I'm seeking counsel. And here's what God eventually said to me. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. That's what you need to do. So my wife is praying the same thing. And God says to her, respect your husband. He doesn't deserve my respect. That's not what I ask you. I said, respect your husband. Is that a verse in the Bible? Is that, is that a God's a promise in the Bible, a, a principle in the Bible? Absolutely. See, this is the way God communicates with us. That's why if you're setting the word of God aside, you're going to miss 90% of what God wants to say. 
We keep wanting to just like have God, you know, bring up brand new stuff to us and, and just download it. When God says, look, the answer is the principle, the promises are here. Here's what First, Second Peter 1, 4 says. He granted to us his precious and magnificent promise so that by them you may become partakers of his divine nature. God says, if I answered your question, you wouldn't change. But if I give you principles and promises to go by, then you will experience change. God's agenda is always bigger than our immediate circumstance. Faith says, I believe in God and his power. And so God wants to do that. And he's given us the authority, the delegated authority through the name of Jesus in order to leverage what God has leveraged on our behalf. So let me just close with this. All right, there's two kinds of authority. There's original and there's delegated. Like if I'm a president of a company and I'm the owner uh, and I'm president and you are my representative, you're an employee of mine, you are my representative, you can only do on behalf of me what I delegate you to do, right? If you step outside of those boundaries, you're going to get fired, right? I didn't delegate. I didn't tell you you could do that. I didn't tell you you could spend that money. Listen, in the spiritual realm, there's only one original authority is Jesus himself, we simply receive delegated authority from Christ to leverage God's resources here on earth. And so delegated authority must operate within the boundaries of the one who owns the original authority. This means that anytime our prayers are outside of his will, they have no authority. Remember what 1 John 5 says? If we pray in the Father's will, he'll do it. If I'm praying outside of his will, he's not going to do it. I don't, you can't twist God's arm. You're not going to change his mind. And so Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son of God may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. Christians read that, and they think, got a blank? I got a blank check. I can do anything I want. Nuh-uh. Only within the framework of the will of God will God answer that prayer, the, the authority he has delegated. So the biggest problem you're facing today, whatever that is, whether it's in the area of stress, sin, hurt, fears, needs, I don't care, whatever it is, your heavenly Father, in the framework of his will, can meet every single one of them. And you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, can call down from heaven, God's resources to hear on earth as you are praying and seeking the heart of your heavenly Father. And so I recognize what gives me this right is because one day God invited me into his family and I said yes to Jesus Christ and God at that time looked at you, he looked at me and said, this is my beloved son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Now I will delegate authority to you to operate within the framework of my will. That's what prayer is about. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that you, you're so much bigger than us. You're so far outside of us, but yet you desire to have intimacy and relationship with us. So thank you for providing us the way and the means by which that happens. And I pray here this morning, Father, for every single person who is 
in this auditorium. I, I pray that they would know that they know that they have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, and thereby have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. And if there is any doubt, if there's any, any wonder, Lord, I, I pray that they would seal that today by opening up their heart to Jesus acknowledging him as the savior of the world, the one who came to die for their sin, who was buried, who was resurrected, and who defeated sin and death, and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. I pray they'll open their heart and ask Jesus to forgive them of their sin, to be the savior and Lord of their life, that they would give their life to him and follow him for the remainder of their lives. Thank you, sweet Jesus for tearing the veil in the temple and opening up the pathway that we might enter into our Father's presence. Thank you for teaching us what it means to enter into his presence and to acknowledge his names and to leverage those names because he's given them to us to show us his desires for us. And I pray, Father, that you'll seal those in our hearts. And when we enter into this auditorium week after week, we look at these names on the wall and we are reminded that you are the God who wants to meet our needs. You're the God who wants to take care of our fears and help us in our stress and all of these things that we experience day in and day out in our, in our individual lives. I pray, Father, that this week, God, we'll have a new hunger and desire just to crawl up into your lap and spend time with you and cry out to you, Papa, Abba, Daddy, and allow you to lavish your love upon us. In Jesus' name, I pray and ask these things. Amen. Let's stand together as we close our time in, in song of praise and worship back to our Heavenly Father for who he is, the value of his name. You're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus as a Savior. Maybe you have questions about that. I'll be here at the front during the song after the service. Love to speak with you about that. Maybe God's laid upon your heart to come and join this church. Um, again, I'll be here at the front. I'd love to speak with you about that. Um, but let's lift up our voices in praise and adoration to our Heavenly Father for all the great and good things He does for us every single day.